But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. <clears throat> I should have given you the context that, of course, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people. And at this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, it covers three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He is contrasting the outward obedience to the law, the Ten Commandments, and typical of those hearers and us today, we tend to think just of the outward conformity to it. And he's already dealt with, uh, like last week, he heard that you should not commit murder. And they were thinking, well, if I haven't actually killed a person with my bare hands and I've not murdered someone, and Jesus said, but you can murder in your hearts. And now he's moved into the section on adultery. And a person may say, well, I haven't committed sexual sin with a, another person. I'm not guilty of adultery. And he says you can commit adultery even in your heart. Now, here's what's very important, because I've heard people at times say, you know, when it comes to those sins, it's just as bad to think it as to do it. Well, in one sense, yes. In one sense, no. What Jesus was saying, I mean, obviously, to have murderous, to sin in your heart with murderous thoughts and attitudes, yes, it's sin, but the implications are not the same as actual murder. To commit adultery in your heart is sin, but obviously it doesn't have the same implications and lives and families aren't torn apart like the actual deed. Here's what Jesus was saying, I, I think, part of it. Watch this for a second. Let's say that uh, if I were to go over there, that you can't see it, but there's some steps in the top step. Let's say if, if I thought, okay, that is the line, and if I cross it, I have committed, since we're in adultery, adul uh, committed adultery. And so in those days, especially with the Pharisees, the religious leaders and the teachers, they would say, you could walk right up to the line. Yet if you do not step the next six inches over, you've not committed adultery, right? Now, when you have that kind of attitude toward the law, where inevitably do you end up? one inch from the line. So Jesus, I think, is saying, my understanding, and I, I, the Sermon on the Mount was really what God used some sermons on that by Martin Lloyd-Jones to really change my heart as a high school senior. What Jesus, part of what he's saying is that you and I can violate God's law, watch, right here. One step in that direction. Lustful thoughts, immoral thoughts, murderous thoughts at that point and so we can live very self-righteous lives like many of Jesus's hearers thinking well I've not I've not done that I've not stepped over that line and Jesus is saying you stepped over it the moment you you know began to harbor those thoughts there's a man I'm not sure if he's still living his name was Bill Poole he was an architect you would see some of his work featured in Southern Living Magazine and years ago, I heard him tell how he came to faith in Christ as an adult. He was a very prosperous man and in Birmingham, had a uh, successful career. He ended up in the hospital, and I think his wife maybe had been attending Briarwood Presbyterian Church, and so Frank Barker came to visit with him. He was a pastor at the time. And Bill, the way Bill said it, he thought he was a very good moral person, thought he was a Christian, thought he was everything he needed to be, to be acceptable to God. 
Well, Frank Barker, I think, quickly determined that Bill's trust was in himself and in his goodness, in his mind. And so Frank said, Bill, have you ever, let me ask you about God's law, you know, as he was talking to him about his need for Christ and so forth. And Bill said, I'm a really good person. He said, have you violated the Ten Commandments? He said, well, I try and keep the Ten Commandments. He said, well, let me ask you this. And so he opened the Bible in Matthew chapter 5, and he read to him that section about murder. He said, you ever had any really angry thoughts enough to call somebody a fool in your heart? Well, sure I have. Frank looked at him and said, well, you committed murder in your heart. You ever had any lustful thoughts toward another woman? Well, yeah, well, I'm only human. Sure I have. Well, God says you've committed adultery. Basically, he was saying, how are you feeling about yourself now? And Bill came to faith in Christ as a result of, of seeing the Sermon on the Mount, seeing that God's, God's law is to affect our hearts. So what about divorce? Here, i uh, got this little handout. The the watershed passage in the Bible in the New Testament about divorce really is in Mark chapter 10. So even though we're looking at Matthew 5, I want to read to you Mark 10 because they're saying the same thing but a little bit more so. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to him, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, it's no secret that our culture, uh, marriages in our culture are under attack. And, and I would just say as a nation, we've seemed to have given up believing in the value of a permanent marriage. Our divorce rate is double that of France, it's double that of Germany, it's three times that of Japan, and these nations are generally far less Christian than the United States. Only England has a divorce rate similar to the U.S. Now, if you're looking for this information, it's not there on the outline, okay? I'm, I'm going to get to the outline in a moment. About 43% of first-time marriages in America will end in divorce, and 60% of remarriages will suffer the same fate. And as you trace those out to third and fourth marriages, the percentages go up, like 70% of third marriages. So we don't get better at it. We get worse at it by doing it more often. Now, contrast that with 1952. Only one in 250 marriages, or 0.4%, that would be 0 .04 if you were ended in divorce. In the culture, in the culture and in the church, it seems as though we become overwhelmed and we become apathetic. We think that divorce is here to stay. We're helpless to do anything about it. But in the church, especially, we have to remember that divorce is more than statistics. It's real people. It's real hopes. It's real dreams. It's pain. Many of us here have been directly affected by divorce, either if you or yourself have been divorced, or your parents, or a child, or more than one child, or a sibling, 
So if we're a typical crowd, seven out of 10 of us in this room have firsthand knowledge of divorce in our immediate family. And you just think a minute uh, how those divorces have affected your life, just your life, even if you've not been through a divorce. So we come to this passage in, in Matthew 5. We come to the parallel passage in Mark 10. And so right now, I'm not going to give a sermon on how to make marriage work. Okay, that's not the purpose of this. I want to focus on what Jesus is saying about divorce. Um, but I would recommend one of many good books to you on that subject of making marriage work entitled Divorce Proof Your Marriage. That's the name of the book, Divorce Proof Your Marriage. It's very good. What are biblical definitions of marriage and divorce? Okay, marriage, marriage in the Bible, biblically defined, consists of one man united to one woman. Now, that is the biblical definition. You can't change it regardless of what politicians and our culture says about it. Now, you can change it in society and what our laws say, but you can't change what the scriptures say. And it is a covenant relationship. This is key because this contrasts with the way marriage is depicted today with, with arguments for same-sex marriage. Uh, so it's a covenantal relationship. The husband and the wife... <clears throat> together have parental responsibility for their children. And here's what's really important. In the Bible, marriage is an ordinance from creation, meaning you go to find about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. You don't turn to Genesis chapter 3 after sin enters the picture. It was already here. So as far as the spheres of influence in society, marriage was before government. Marriage was before the church. So the church didn't think up marriage, and government certainly didn't think up marriage. So marriage was created at creation. It's a creation ordinance. <coughs> what about Christian marriage? The Apostle Paul says to marry in the Lord. That's the phrase that's used in Colossians and in Ephesians, in the Lord. The Christian family is a result of God's grace that brings a husband and a wife to a saving relationship with Christ, and then they commit to live according to the word of God for the glory of God. Uh, so Christian marriage, it's not as though God created marriage just for believers. It, it was a creation ordinance. It's for all people. So it doesn't matter what religion you are or no religion, marriage is still a thing that God has given to all people. But for Christians, there are some specific guidelines. First and foremost, to marry in the Lord, that is to marry another believer. Now, what is a biblical definition of divorce? I am on the outline, right? B. Now, this may shock you at first, but I want to explain it. Divorce is a God-given instrument of mercy for the protection of those who have been victims of covenantal immorality or abandonment, as well as an instrument of mercy for the violators protecting them from death. Okay, now I want to try and explain that. I don't know if you ever hear a divorce referred to as an instrument of mercy. That's, therefore, I, it warrants some serious explanation at this point. Mark chapter 10 is the definitive text on divorce. I just read it. The ministry of Jesus in Galilee is now coming to an end. This is the context of those words. He's now continuing his work in Judea as he prepares for his final journey to Jerusalem. 
And for his suffering that he had already predicted that he would experience, crowds had followed him. They had listened to his teaching. But with the crowds came a group of men we have heard from throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that's the Pharisees. They came not to learn from Jesus, but to test him and to trick him up. In fact, where it says they asked this of him to test him, that is the same concept, the same word that had been used of Satan when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. So it's not a serious question. It is a question with an agenda to trip someone up. So the Pharisees actually are mishandling the Scripture, and that's exactly what Satan had done in his approach to Jesus. He had used Scripture, but he had misused it. Now the Pharisees were divided into two schools of thought regarding divorce. Some were strict. Others said there was freedom to divorce in everything from immorality to burning the toast. Sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Now, the giveaway is in the question, how it's asked. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's what they're getting at, the reason for divorce. In other words, does the law of Moses allow for divorce for any reason at all? And Jesus responds back, not with a yes or no, but he responds back with what the purpose of marriage was when God created it. And that's in verses 6 through 8. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man not separate. Now, that's he is saying that in response to the question, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? He goes back to Genesis 2, to the creation account. God created marriage. God is the one who is to regulate marriage. One man, one woman for life. Sin has entered the world. Therefore, life comes to an end at death. And Jesus is saying, going back to Genesis, we are joined together, and the marriage is to continue until death. He brings them back to the fact and the truth. It's one man, one woman for life. That was God's intent. That was God's creation. So we know from that that marriage is to go on until death. Now in response, the Pharisees become very specific. Now you have to find this in Matthew 19. Don't turn there, but if you want to make a note, it's Matthew 19, 7. Then they respond back. Why then did Moses command that a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they were saying to Jesus, if it's to be one man, one woman till death, why then do we have this command in the law of Moses to give a certificate of divorce? Are y'all with me? I'm trying just to state what's being stated here. So they twisted the words of Moses. The Pharisees had twisted the words of Moses as though Moses had commanded in the law to give her a certificate of divorce. See how it's it's a subtle shift, but it means it's a total different meaning. And so Moses is saying, you must, you must do this. So the provision of divorce, according to the Pharisees, has now been moved to a command. Now Jesus makes the point that Moses did not command that, that he permitted it in certain cases. So Jesus corrects their statement. And in verse 8, He says, 
it's because of sin. <clears throat> Moses doesn't command it. He permits it. The only reason divorce is here is because of sin and hardness of heart. Now, let me reference Deuteronomy 24, which is the passage, uh, you see it there, I printed it, about which they're, from which they're paraphrasing. In verse 1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing, in other words, he's found something indecent about her. It, it doesn't mean that she burns the toast. It doesn't mean that there's some little, it's something substantial. It's though this person's not who I thought she was. She's Maybe she's had numerous sexual partners now, and I just find this out after we're married. It's, it's, not, it's not talking about some little preferential thing. It's a, like a violation of what, uh, of what you get it. So he divorces her with a legal document and sends her away. This indecency had come to be defined in very broad terms in the culture. So they had taken that, if he finds something displeasing to her, and they had really stretched out the meaning. They had broadened it like I was trying to tell you a moment ago. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus defines the concept of the, the indecency. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What he is doing is saying this is what's meant by indecency. This is not, it's not you know, whether you like to sleep on one side of the bed and she likes to sleep on the other. That isn't it. We're talking sexual immorality. So Jesus is spelling out what the word indecency or displeasing meant from Deuteronomy chapter 24. The word Jesus uses there for except for marital unfaithfulness is porneia or immorality. And Jesus defines that as covenantal immorality. In other words, their sexual sin has violated the marriage covenant. Now, it can include, it can conclude a variety of things. And adultery is one key example. So observations about divorce. I'm down to Roman numeral three. Whenever you deal with divorce, you have to start with the blueprint of marriage. Divorce is not a part of Genesis 1 to 2, but of Genesis 3. In other words, it happened after. It became permissible after sin entered the world. We don't see divorce as part of the creation of Genesis 1 and 2. We see marriage as part of that, but not divorce. So divorce is here because of the presence of sin. Had Adam and Eve been obedient, their marriage would have been immortal from all indication. It would have lasted forever. That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? I probably just raised more questions than I answered. Second, divorce is not a sin in and of itself, but can be sinful. It can be sinful. Indecency in Jesus' day, that word, that concept had been broadened to where you could divorce for any reason. Sinful divorces should receive an appropriate stigma. But divorce is not sin in and of itself. If you say all divorce necessarily, emphatically, is sin in and of itself, then you've called God a sinner. Because his relationship with Israel was called a marriage. But because Israel played the, the harlot, he says, I give you a writ of divorce. So if divorce in and of itself is sinful, then we are calling God a sinner. Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah 3, I gave faithfulness, faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. 
Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. That's Jeremiah 3.8. Third, divorce is a divine concession as an act of mercy because of the presence of sin. Thankfully, as a minister, I do not recall anyone seriously asking me ever, do I think they should get divorced? I've had people want me to say that to them, but I've never had a serious question, you know, asked. Like, I really don't know what to do. Pastor, do you think I should get divorced? I would have a very, very hard time saying yes to that. I wouldn't say I'd never say it because I know primarily through some of my pastor friends, I had I was with a friend one day, and he pastor he pastored older than I am, pastored much longer than I have. And he said, you know, there's only been two cases where I advised someone to get a divorce. He said one was, and he had pastored out in Texas, he said there was a man in the church, or the wife was in the church, and the husband was just committing adultery. I mean, he all these one-night stands. He said one night he brought a stripper home and asked the wife to get out of bed so that he could sleep with this stripper. And he said, I told that woman, you need to divorce him for your own safety. You have got to get out of this marriage. But let me tell you the rest of the story. He said, you know what? God miraculously converted that man. And he said, I was saying you should end the marriage. And God had other plans. So, um, so there are extreme cases, obviously life-threatening cases. But there are, what I want you to hear, there are rare times when divorce is actually an act of God's mercy. And here's how, why I say that. The mercy goes in two directions. First, I've, I've written it down there, to the victim. It's to protect the victim from continued immorality. We're not talking about someone faltering one time. It's there to protect the victim, like the situation I just described that was somewhat extreme. Also, divorce is an instrument of mercy to the violator. Now, listen to this, okay? This is, goes contrary to what we normally think. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. Therefore, when the adulterer was stoned, they die, and the marriage is over, and the victim is protected. See, we don't think like that now when... But I'm just trying to tell you under the theocratic Old Testament law. Now, in the New Testament law, we're no longer under a theocracy. We're not called to bring capital punishment to bear on adulterers. Now, does that put the victim in a situation where they have to continue under such abuse? No. Thus, they are allowed to divorce. So in the Old Testament, not only the marriage would have ended, but the adulterer's life would have ended, too. Am I making sense? So divorce now is, a, is an act of mercy by God. In the New Testament, Jesus says mercy is now extended to the violators, so the door of repentance is still open before the Lord. So in the Old Testament, they would have died. So now divorce is an instrument of mercy for the victim and the violator. <laughs> Please take the Now you see why I put this down so you can take it home with you and look at it and say, did he just say what I thought he said? Third or fourth, divorce is permitted in only two instances in the Bible, sexual immorality, I just read to you Matthew 5, and abandonment or desertion. 
1 Corinthians 7, 8 to 16, Paul is addressing believers married to unbelievers who wonder if there is a way out of this. And he says you're to stay in it, Christian. If your unbelieving spouse decides, I didn't buy into this, you're not the person I married. I didn't marry a religious fanatic. I didn't marry a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. And I, they say, I'm, I'm gone. Then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is saying that person has deserted their covenantal vows and left you and you are free to divorce. So we have to apply common sense to the marriage. Someone can still hang around the house but abandon someone. Often the person, the, the unbeliever who, quote, wants out, they're not working anyway. They're not leaving the house. <laughs> they want you to leave the house. It is abandoning one's vows and commitment even though they may be physically present. Let me move on with the last six minutes. Divorce is a legal act which is actual and accountable. Even if it was unbiblical, it is still a divorce. Divorce is a legal act. When a divorce has been finalized, it is actual, and people will answer for it. it is, so it's false. If you've ever said this, don't say it again. Well, in the eyes of the Lord, they're still married. No, they are not. That is not true. So divorce is real and actual, even if it is unbiblical and sinful. A sinful divorce is forgivable but still consequential. If I commit the sin of unbiblical divorce, is it forgivable? Of course it is, but it still has consequences, and it has key consequences as to whether you can remarry. Example, I can get drunk, and I can have a wreck. I can drink and drive and have a wreck and lose my arm. And so here I am because of my, my sin and no arm. Can I be forgiven? Yes. Will I get my arm back? No. If you have an unbiblical divorce, don't cover up, fess up. Fess up and repent in that situation the best you can. If it's child support, if it's, if it's whatever, whatever needs to be done as far as repentance. Three applications. One, turn away from divorce, divorce miss. Miss, can't say it. A person might say, well, my motives were not, I've, I've heard this one, I'm not making this up. I've heard this one right here in, the, in this church building. I've heard it more than once. My motives were not right when I married her or him in the first place, and therefore getting a divorce is the only right thing to do, if I'm really to be honest before God. And I'll say to you what I've said to them. No, being faithful to your vows is the right thing to do. It's our tendency to go back and be revisionist and write history when things don't go well now and go back and say, you know, my motives were wrong back when I quit that job or I married this person. Therefore, if I'm really a Christian, I'll have to make this right. And the way to make it right, I get out of the marriage. And then the second divorce myth. It's better to get a divorce for the children's sake. And I would say ask the children. Don't ask them now. Ask them when they're 20 or 30. And some of them will hate your guts. I don't have any other way to put it. You read Wallerstein's book on, on divorce. And it, this, if you're not a Wallerstein, I've, this book's been around for about 15 years. She tracked, she's not a believer, and she tracked the children of divorce over about a 30-year period and told about the things they wrestled with as adults and their view toward the other sex and their view toward relationships. It's not a pretty picture. 
Now, I'm not trying to heap guilt on, but we live in a day that doesn't think in terms of consequences. i got to be, well, we're going to run out of time. Each time I see a new politician come out in support now of gay marriage, and, and, and no one's asking the right questions. Why doesn't Pierce Morgan ask him, what about the children? Societies don't protect marriage between husband and wife because they're trying to keep two people who love each other from being together. They're trying to protect society by trying to protect a basic unit in society. And so what we're saying with that is it's better for children not to have a mother and have two men in their life, or it's better not to have a father. Everything in social science says the otherwise. But nobody... Nobody's willing to ask, why not just, come on, Pierce, why not, uh, who's the blind, uh, why, Anderson, Anderson Cooper, why not just say, as long as you've arrived and evolved to this position, how do you think it's going to affect children over the next three generations? I've never even heard the question. It's only praise of, oh, I'm sorry, I've gone to preaching. Say no to false dilemmas. I would add this, never in the Bible is divorce a remedy. It is a device for protection in certain situations. And this is hard, but it's true. It is never redemptive. Never. Never is it given as though this is going to redeem the situation and the great things are going to come from it. It's always an outlet for protection. Say no to false dilemmas. Some people who are professing Christians would say there's no immorality or desertion, but they just see it as a bad marriage. So let's go ahead and bite the bullet and get forgiveness later. And they say, and they believe it. That's my only option. That's my only option. No, you have another option. You've got the option of repentance. And I don't know exactly what that might look at in very complex situations, but God has a way of fixing things that are unfixable. You've done it in your life, and anyone that's here that's converted, we were in some terrible situations. And somehow or another, God will make a commitment to the sanctity of marriage. If you're married here, and I know they're, they're, uh, several of us here that are not, or maybe you're widowed or widower. Make a commitment to the sanctity of your own marriage, your family and extended family. And as a church, we all have to help those in marriages who have gone through divorce, as I assume in a crowd this size, as some of you have. I close with this, and I didn't write it down, I don't think, but the key to marriage stability is personal sanctification. I mean, we can't control another person, but I can control myself. Uh, I can't control uh, the responses of a spouse, but I have the personal responsibility for my own sanctification. So I have to feast on the means of grace. Um, I have to read books. I don't look for silver bullets to fix relational problems. And I think the basic thing, and it sounds simplistic, but walking with Jesus is the key to every relationship, including marriage. Um, there are no shortcuts. Um, but if we fill the fountain of our hearts with the grace of the Lord Jesus, it can purify. Oh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We live in a broken world, but the sad thing is it's a broken world that, that thinks it will uh, make things better by breaking more things. And so we pray that we would trust you and look to you in our lives and the lives of our grown children or parents or siblings. And uh, we pray for our churches that, that we might be supportive of your word, first and foremost, that we might be declarative and preach and teach the gospel. We pray for our marriages that you might have mercy on us and protect us uh, from the culture that really is at war with marriage in a in hundred different ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.